0: Warning, Aaron Moritz will not be joining us this episode. He has been taken out by the reptilians and the Illuminati because he is too powerful of an organizer.
1: Yeah, I was just—I was actually just thinking, ironically, talking about the Illuminati as something that uh, is an important praxis.
0: It's certainly an enjoyable one. I'm not sure how fiend it is, but it, it's something that is desirable.
1: Saul Alinsky said that a a good tactic is a tactic your people like.
0: Well, if Saul Alinsky said it, then it must be true.
2: You're wrong, he's wrong, she's wrong. that world of life is profoundly affected by social developments. Now this is a very provocative notion, however simple it might seem. Because what it says is that the center, the locus, the target, the focus, use whatever word you want, of the environmental problems that we face today exist not only in our attitudes toward nature, but in the kind of society in which we live. Our attitudes toward nature, and I want to use the word nature very provisionally, that that phenomenon that we call natural evolution, of which we are products, our evolution in the natural world can be clearly traced today with an enormous amount of supportive paleontological material, or physical anthropology and the like, Our evolution out of the natural world, and we are still part of the natural world even as we evolved out of the natural world to form a social evolution, has profoundly affected the natural world. And unless, however importantly we talk about the need to change our attitudes to the natural world, however we seek to evolve a greater sensibility, a richer sensibility toward the world of life around us. The social relations, the economic relations, the marketplace, have a more profound effect upon our relationship with the natural world than even our attitudes, important as these attitudes may be. The very idea of dominating nation, now let me stress the word idea here, because I am consistently misunderstood about this. The very idea of dominating the natural world, I have argued in a very lengthy book, stems from the domination of human by human.
1: So, Pete, you're a relative expert on the subject of Murray Bookchin's ideas.
2: I would
0: disagree with that, but I, I'm, I'm well-studied in them.
1: You're a relative expert compared to me.
0: For now. I have faith that one day your Jedi powers will expand.
1: Well, thank you very much. So, for, for someone who's Googling Murray Bookchin and has no idea who he is, what is Murray Bookchin? Who, who is he?
0: Murray Bookchin helped to reinvent the left along libertarian, ethical, humanist, and ecological lines, really with his post-1960s work, and has helped influence one of the most important revolutions in the history of the human species, which is the Rojavan Revolution, which consists of millions of people organizing without political and economic rulers with complex organizational processes under extreme conditions, which includes warfare from various different sides, everything from dealing with the authoritarianism of Assad to ISIS, and then being involved in an international quagmire in between world superpowers. They've been extremely resilient, despite the fact that they have to spend so much of their resources on basically self-defense. And this is the longest-lasting libertarian socialist revolution of this size in the millions that has ever existed so it's very exciting
1: this is in northern syria
0: yes but there are communalist movements that are not just in in northern syria but are also throughout the region but yeah rojava is in northern syria
1: and and you said that there's millions of people participating in this right now
0: yes so wait
1: (laughs) so that seems like a lot
0: it's absolutely huge it's it's amazing And, and when we when we really look at it under the kind of context that they're dealing with it's particularly amazing but even without the context what they're doing is a, a rather inspiring movement
1: so so wait, wait, wait okay so you're saying that there that there's this this anarchist writer from new york named murray bookchin who created his own kind of specific murray bookchin special sauce anarchism And then that has influenced a movement that's going on right now of millions of people in the Middle East who are organizing along direct democratic lines and fighting ISIS. Yes. (laughs) And that's literally true? Like you're not pulling my leg or exaggerating in any way?
0: No, that's actually happening. (laughs) What? No, it's it's literally utopia happening in a place where we'd least expect it. What's interesting is that Murray's Ideas have usually been critiqued as being extremely theory heavy and almost like it's not practical and it's just all abstract or in people's heads or whatnot. But th- this is a very theory heavy practice that's happening in a place where we'd least expect it.
1: And how did, how did the Middle East, how how does that connection happen?
0: I believe while Ochelon was in prison, the leader of the Kurdish Workers Party, Turkish feminists wound up giving him the work of Murray Bookchin. And he wound up reading up on that as well as other various anarchist thinkers, and pretty much wanted to change his entire worldview from a more Marxist-Leninist position to a libertarian socialist one. And there were also internal divisions within the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party itself already happening, especially among women who were fighting for a more democratic worldview. And that kind of coalesced, and eventually that was that was pretty much accepted.
1: So the Workers' Party was kind of brocialist until... Bookchin came along. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I, I think that there were there were so there was some brocialism that that got unbrocialized.
1: The thing that first kind of pulled me towards Murray Bookchin is this idea of post scarcity anarchism, which I kind of saw as a a really utopian vision of what is possible with technology. What is uh, I think the
0: post scarcity anarchism book is pretty much the height of 1960s utopian writing. It's extremely psychedelic, it's extremely beautifully written, and it's, it's inherently rational at the same time. He advocates for forms of freedom in that book that are pretty much based on policy-making power being at the lowest level in freely associated organizations, and he advocates for this new content of post-scarcity where we use liberatory technology, that is technology that has an ethical thrust to it, that's designed to be in harmony with the ecosphere as well as with human freedom. We implement that uninhibited by cost efficiency and profit and the state, which pretty much capitalism and the state have their own metrics for how they use technology. The state needs to maximize violent technical potential relative to the people it rules over and even relative to other people external to it, whereas the market is all about maximizing accumulation and and capitalism about having hierarchical production to do so and that very process pretty much makes it so we're not able to actuate technology that is potentially available. And we see this five decades later, plus, since he's written the basic text for post-scarcity anarchism, we still haven't actuated some of the liberatory technology that he was discussing in the 1960s. Even rooftop solar hasn't been anything close to um, fully actuated. Uh, And that's some of the most basic technology he was talking about at the time. I mean, was talking about the potential for automating the vast majority of mechanical labor, freeing humans to have a life of leisure, to do what they want, and have a new a new level and degree of self-management that could really free us from undesired labor and just unleash human creativity on, on extremely large scales.
1: So, in a way, Murray Bookchin is, is kind of compatible with transhumanism.
0: I don't know what Murray would think about transhumanism. I'd imagine he'd think that it's a kind of hyper-extreme technology that requires a delicate approach, to say the least, in regards to how we use it. But it's not something that he ever really touched upon. No, he never talked talked about merging with machines or using AI in any, any meaningful sense. Mainly, he was interested in automating mechanical labor to free us to do creative activities that we would enjoy to do, uncoerced by economic systems that force us to compete with our technologies in order to get labor in order to survive.
1: He wrote about this in the 60s.
0: Yes, this is before Jacques Fresco.
1: This is before inventing the future, which brings the critique forward that basically automation is a good thing but that capitalism won't give us the automation that we need it's only going to give us the capital it's only going to give us the automation that it needs which is sometimes going to be actually antagonistic towards working people
0: and Murray never thought that pretty much technology under the influence of capitalism is going to usher in a new system or that it's going to create an inherent crisis for capitalism he thought that capitalism was extremely resilient and that all the past crisis theories of capitalism had failed and that we shouldn't assume that internal contradictions within capitalism are going to cause itself to fall and that that thinking such things would inhibit us from doing what's necessary to actually prefigure a movement that is going to actually be sufficient to bring hierarchical political economic governance to an end by thinking that it's just going to fall in on itself or or give birth to communism out of capitalism sort of the way that Marx sometimes put it
1: i love that because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine that the the politics of procrastination politics like the idea that we're going to start the revolution tomorrow or that something needs to that we need to wait it's treated as a type of wisdom in a way to say like you need to wait for the right time to have a revolution like revolutions won't just happen in any conditions there needs to be some sort of specific societal change that brings about the revolution and that this this is kind of touted as wise but then is also at the same time used as an excuse against like putting in the work of actually starting organizing for such a crisis scenario
0: spot on what's interesting is there's actually something to the idea that there are certain revolutionary moments or certain moments where There's more likely to be um, direct change from events. However, it's precisely what we do in between those kind of moments that is going to determine, in part, how those revolutionary moments play out. So the idea that we need to wait for such a moment in order to act is going to actually inhibit our ability to act well during such a moment. There's a degree of urgency, and, and we need to take that seriously and organize as soon as we can
1: on one hand of the the Murray Bookchin ideas i feel like there's the post scarcity anarchism which is this technology forward kind of utopian a society where um, technology is in harmony with human need and technology is not uh, is not something that you know uh, dominates people or or takes things away from people and then on the other hand there's the Not an incompatible idea, but at least the superficially opposite idea, which is the kind of social ecology, these ecological ideas about living in balance with nature and and seeing democratic processes as an an extension of of nature, which it feels kind of like an opposite in a way.
0: It's interesting because the the deep ecologists and the biocentrists who Murray opposed ideologically throughout his life, those people try to make it seem as if Human freedom and ecological resilience are incompatible with each other so that humans need to be dominated by natural laws and sort of only forage and not use any applied knowledge or art or technology in any, in any kind of meaningful sense. Whereas Murray said it's, it's precisely the process of negating human freedom and that anti-humanism th- through systems that are hierarchical that wind up creating ecological problems. So ecological problems are not caused by the fact that we have neofrontal cortexes or opposable thumbs or human biology, nor is it caused by human society without adjectives, nor is it caused by technology without adjectives. It's caused by hierarchical political economic governance systems, which turn life into non-life to the degree that they maximize power and centralize profit. Those very systems also inhibit liberatory technology and ecological technology. And Murray thought not only was it possible for our technology to be in harmony with first nature or the non-human natural world and the non-social natural world, he thought it was possible for us to even enrich First nature through using compassionate applied arts and, and, and techniques towards that which is not human. We can actually enrich the biosphere. We can do things like seed saving and veterinary work. And now there's new research into myco honey, the ability to find various mycelium that's good for various bees and their immunity. And we can actually intervene into first nature in a way that increases the immune system of primary pollinators
1: that's really amazing and interesting and crazy but so first nature and second nature first nature is is nature without humans and second nature is humans and human technology human society it's an extension of nature that's at the same time distinct
0: yeah so so the best way to put it would be second nature as social nature and first nature is non-social nature and all second nature is within first nature if you will and developed out of it, but not all of first nature is um, second nature.
1: Second nature is actually nested within first nature.
0: Yeah, it's part of nature, but it also has its own qualitative differences.
1: If there was a if there was a, a hyper intelligent pig that we were having social relationships with, then that would become part of second nature. Or even if human beings are interacting with something uh, as dumb as a pig, that that is within the context of second nature because it's a social relationship. Is that am I understanding correctly?
0: Exactly how to parse out those limits and definitions is difficult but pretty much second nature is the social world first nature is the non-social world and third nature was what he posited as a way to harmonize second nature with first nature which was a conception of a free nature where you have humans as nature rendered self-conscious in harmony with first nature and adding to it
1: that is fascinating little known facts about Bookchin Bookchin
0: used to get in ideological arguments with Bernie Sanders.
1: Bookchin is a three-foot-tall woman who lives in a shoe.
0: Bookchin was very influential in People's Park in in Berkeley and the counterculture of the 60s and informing their ideology.
1: Some of Bookchin's work include The Wealth of Nations, The Communist Manifesto, and Atlas Shrugged.
0: Murray Bookchin ceased being an anarchist by the end of his life, but was still against all forms of hierarchy.
1: The SpaceX rocket that blew up was named after Murray Bookchin because Elon Musk is a devout social ecologist.
0: Governments are different than states. Governments kind of can refer to some institution that governs, but it doesn't really have too many adjectives outside of that, and in that sense it's like tofu, it can kind of be spiced with anything, whereas the state is a specific form of government that's based on hierarchical policy-making bodies, hierarchical enforcement bodies, punishment, professionalized bureaucracy, and a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence at the expense of a non-hierarchical standard of violence.
1: Little known facts about Bookchin. Something I see claimed uh, by advocates of Bookchin is that his, his work is objectively grounded, or is grounded in a coherent philosophical framework. What, what does that mean as, as compared to something that has an incoherent framework? So what
0: makes Bookchin's worldview kind of impervious to authoritarianism is the fact that he has various dimensions that help sort of answer questions you would have if they weren't there to sort of mutually be each other's safety nets and hold up the entire worldview altogether. So, for example, it's not just direct democracy that he's for. He's also for a non-hierarchical social contract that makes it so certain things are off the table. It's not just that he's against racism, he's also against sexism. It's not just that he's against sexism, he's also against capitalism. It's not that he's against capitalism, he's also against the state. It's not that he's just against capitalism, he's also against the market. It's, a, it's an ecological whole in the sense that it's a very full negative program. He's not just targeting particular hierarchies, he's critiquing hierarchy as a whole. And he has a positive program as well where he advocates something that we should be for, these directly democratic communes that use liberatory technology within a non-hierarchical social contract. It's the combination of his entire worldview that makes it sort of give it its ethical thrust. Without certain parts of it, it might be not possible to actuate or not even desirable.
1: The whole body of his work played against itself, you feel, like, kind of inherently defends itself against the capacity to be, like, co-opted or uh, or turn into, like, a violent authoritarian structure or something like that?
0: To the degree that the coherent worldview is actuated. It has certain defenses against sort of infiltration from authoritarianism or from third positionism. For example, if, if you notice in contemporary circles, when you have negative single-program activism, so we're against this one evil thing, it can invite a lot of people who have very backwards views.
1: Like for Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street's a great example. You're against financial corruption, and then you have these communists protesting alongside these Ron Paul audit the fed libertarians. Very little common ground to be found there between those people.
0: Right, Bob Avakian's cult mixed with Ludwig von Mises cult, mixed with human rights activists, mixed with kind of kids just getting into left politics, mixed with libertarian leftists, mixed with individualist anarchists, mixed with social democrats, and then whatever the lowest common denominator is between them is just that they're against something, I guess, which isn't sufficient to even challenge that negative program. It's not, it's, not, it's not able to – how do I put this? It's not able to sufficiently be against what they're against through only being against what they're against and not positing a positive program.
1: Oh, someone someone made the point uh, somewhere on the internet recently that I liked, which was that just being against things is advocating for there to be less things. You also need to have a suggestion of a replacement. So, like, if you're going to say that we can't do something anymore, you need to suggest what we're also going to do instead of doing that. And I thought that was like a really interesting argument. It sounds kind of similar to what you're talking about as far as like a positive, not just having a negative platform. It's like no pipelines, but like. Uh, a positive platform as well, which is like no pipelines, instead nuclear power or instead geothermal power or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it, or any negative program can be open to, to a bunch of different positive programs. For example, I went to a protest against the Syrian war and you have people who are against the U.S. intervening in Syria and there were people waving Assad flags next to anarchists. Um, I've been to BDS or Palestine solidarity rallies where there are open Holocaust deniers and open anti-Semites there. Even though the negative program of being against U.S. military or the U.S. states or against the occupation of the Palestinians, even though that negative program is necessary, it's not sufficient. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have reactionary views such as Hamas solidarity or Assad solidarity. So you need To have a negative program that is sufficiently negative, that that encompasses certain universals and not just particular hierarchies, but universal hierarchies, along with a positive program that posits something else. Because even the negative program of being against all hierarchies is open to people who are just against all institutions as well as hierarchical institutions. And all of a sudden you have people who are against hierarchical institutions, some of which want a primitivist society with six billion people dead other people wanting a utopian left libertarian future, who are organizing together under the ultimate negative program of non-hierarchy. So it's interesting to see that even the, the universal negative program can sort of be open to the forces of reaction.
1: Yeah, this is something that you'd, uh, you'd mentioned to me before, which is that you thought that only a negative platform is ex- explicitly open to reactionaries or that even attracts reactionaries.
0: I think so. And it goes along with crisis organizing, because often there's going to be some periodic crisis, which people are going to respond to, which is understandable. In fact, it's necessary. The issue is that it's not going to be sufficient to deal with problems that are institutional and not just periodic.
1: Another thing that Bookchin was, seemed to be pretty, uh, pretty big on advocating for is this idea of um, the, the study group as a way to organize political action.
0: He did think that during times where there wasn't anything organized that that was the place to go to meet like-minded people and then to move into various kind of action and organization because he had a huge critique of the action 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 politics that that wasn't concerned with prefiguring a new society and organizing and building a movement
1: on on, there's kind of a divide between I guess like prefigurative politics like bringing the world you want to see in the world today and uh, the alternative which is, I guess, working within the compromises of this world to create a revolutionary change in the future. Is that is, is that something that Bookchin's firmly on the side of prefigurative politics, or is there kind of like a synthesis there?
0: He, he's on the side of revolutionary politics as opposed to a reformist one. However, he was not opposed to getting involved in, in city politics at the, at the most local municipal level to then transform that into um, a completely bottom-up kind of institution and to challenge that with prefigurative community groups that then kind of pose the community versus the hierarchical political bureaucracies. And as the prefigurative movements gain power, it needs to come at the expense of the power from the state crafters and and capitalists. And as that happens, there's degrees of tension. And, And he thought it was essential that those movements run candidates for city council to then take power away from reaction and to kind of defang the state and demilitarize it because the state is too militarized to have an open conflict with and have any hopes of success. So he thought it was important to go into the vessels of city government and defang the state and then pit confederations of communities against the state and on a large enough level, that can become revolutionary, whereas on a local level, it's, it's more parochial. It needs to be confederated along regional lines for it to actually pose a threat to an institution as evil and powerful as a 21st century state.
1: And, and he, he has this focus on the, on the local level, um, but there is kind of also an international promise to the ideas.
0: The problem with localism is that it can be parochial, so you need to combine it with a firm sort of internationalist anti-nationalism, a, a sort of a global or ecological perspective on the world.
1: Sorry, what is, what's parochial mean?
0: Short-sighted, o- only focused on the local, but at the expense of, of other people outside of certain boundaries. So we thought it was important for us not to be parochial and for us to, to, to stop dreaming of an idea even of a completely autonomous commune in the sense that it's completely self enclosed he thought it was it was needed and desirable for various communities to all organize together to kind of pool their skills their tools their resources together to create greater degrees of post-scarcity
1: if, if if i was if i hadn't heard of murray bookchin before but you know i was coming from a marxist perspective what's what's the pitch to a communist that bookchin is worth reading and is important for example.
0: What's the pitch to a communist or Marxist? Yeah, yeah. That if you want to create the goal of a society where resources are distributed according to abilities and needs, that needs to be prefigured. It's not going to exist through some kind of hierarchical body that destroys a hierarchical body and then puts itself into power and then promises one day to dissolve itself. Historically, there's no good evidence for that. It hasn't created worker ownership of the means of production or community ownership of the means of production on any meaningful scale. So there's a historical argument against the authoritarian approaches. And there's also an argument that every single time that any kind of social ownership of the means of production has actually existed, it's come about through some form of prefiguration. And it's not just going to happen after the revolution. Otherwise, you just have arbitrary power flowing each way until and you have a power vacuum. It needs to be filled, and there needs to be some kind of decentralized and confederated power to fill that power vacuum. And that's the way that you can actually prevent counter-revolution is through having the mass community support and going outside of the, the echo chambers of, of just pure... Activist circles and actually going into communities where people live and having them organize together with radicals. And you, you need to get popular support for for these ideas, otherwise they're not going to come about.
1: So when when I when I bring up um, public opinion to radicals, uh, people will frequently quote this Marx quote where he says basically that we need to be we need to be critical of everything, despite public opinion, but I feel like there's something to like, why, why should, why should we care about public opinion? <laughs> well, think- if there's
0: all, if there's only a minority of people who believe in something that's true or something that should be true, that's going to be very dangerous. If, if anybody cares about what should be, because if you actually want what should be to be, then you need to have, a, you have to have, yeah, quality of people, but you also need to have quantity of people to actually bring that into motion. Otherwise, one is being, um, how do I put this, naively utopian in the way that Marx used the word utopia.
1: <laughs> yeah, is just Just to play devil's advocate for a second, are you actually advocating that people might change their mind if they're exposed to information? It's possible to convince people of our ideas? Doing so isn't just some sort of naive utopian fantasy?
0: Ideology, I think, certainly drives movements and drives organizations and drives persons, and it's – yeah, they can change with new information. One of of the key things for Murray Bookchin's entire political project was deliberation at the heart of democracy. So people meeting together face-to-face and all talking and raising objections and debating about relevant topics in regards to political economic governance – and then coming to a decision when there's incompatible preferences through majority preference within free association.
1: And he, he called this idea communalism, or this was, a, this was a term that was used before him, but it was the term that he chose to use.
0: At various times, he's called that exact program a couple different things, but yeah, towards the end of his life, he started calling that communalism. Or, or libertarian municipalism, which he considered to be the political thrust to communalism.
1: So like if, if, if someone's coming from like an American libertarian perspective, is there there's something tasty they can bite into with book chain if someone's like a market libertarian?
0: So if someone is a market libertarian, the chances are their end goal is individual freedom. And if they care about individual freedom, then they should care about individuals being freed from mechanical labor and free to express creative faculties in a way that they are not under capitalism. In fact, the constitutionalist dimension to his later work also might be a good bridging point, because a lot of people have a straw man of democracy where they say, oh, democracy, that's just two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. For Murray, there's a non-hierarchical constitution that makes it so the, the means and ends of ruling classes are completely off the table. That's not what's being decided upon. And there's certain rights and obligations that form a matrix that enable for a kind of freedom for the individual as well.
1: He, he advocates not like the American constitution is the best thing in the world, but that the theory of a constitution is what makes democracy work.
0: It was one of the many parts of the coherent whole of what would make democracy work. It wasn't just that. He also thought, for example, one thing that was required was a degree of technology that would free people to participate, right? But going back to that initial point about... A, a social contract or a constitution? Yeah, he thought it was important that there were rules. They were—they seemed to be made rationally and, and ethically, and that way we couldn't. We're not. Vo- it's not like people are going to be voting on on who's going to rule over somebody else. That, that's a kind of anti-democratic content. So, for democracy to both be a means and an ends, a form and a content, there needs to be n- no ruling classes um, throughout the process.
1: I, I was in, an in uh, a, a debate about this. Uh, a subject around this recently where someone was saying that democracy by itself means the the rule by the uninformed, like that, that democracy inherently is people who don't know all the details uh, are voting on things that don't affect them anyways and causing horrible trouble, like uh, voting for Trump and it shows how uninformed people shouldn't be able to vote or something. And I was suggesting that it was actually... It was actually the opposite, that uninformed people voting is undemocratic, and that it would be democratic if the people were informed and then they voted. Like, it would be democratic. Democracy doesn't start and stop at the electoral system in place, but it's actually kind of like a holistic a wider cultural thing like democracy involves access to information and also access to ideology access to conflicting worldviews and so that, that reminds me of that same type of thrust which is like that the these these democracy straw men i, I feel like need to be torn apart because they're ridiculous
0: yeah sophistry never went away I, I agree with you you need to have an educated populace if you want to have educated content. And that doesn't mean that you have a less free form because the content isn't perfect. The content's never going to be perfect. But if if you have a population that has general knowledge and places the burden of proof on claims appropriately and applies a precautionary principle when they're too ignorant to know, then you can kind of check for people voting on technology that isn't liberatory, for example. But it's certainly true. You need to have an educated populace as of one of the many factors that would make a democracy actually
1: functioning. And, and within the Bookchin utopia, where there would be a lot of free time because of all of the the labor being saved by the automation. And there'd be a lot of time to enrich oneself, be creative, do research, participate in public life, and so on. This is very kind of central to his idea of democracy.
0: While at the very same time, the very process of deliberation is itself an education process in regards to the questions of what is reality, what reality should be, how we know what we know, and how to get validity, soundness, prudence, cogency, etc. So the very process of voting becomes an education process. I had
3: entered the communist children's movement in 1930 in New York City. I was only nine years of age and had gone through the entire 30s as a Stalinist initially and then increasingly as someone who was more and more sympathetic to Trotskyism. And by 1939, after having seen Hitler rise to power, the Austrian workers' revolt of 1934, an almost completely forgotten episode in labor history the Spanish Revolution, by which I mean the so-called Spanish Civil War, I finally became utterly disillusioned with Stalinism and drifted increasingly toward Trotskyism. And by 1945, I finally also became disillusioned with Trotskyism, and I would say now increasingly with Marxism and Leninism. But the essential thing so far as I'm concerned as I reflect upon all of this now is that I had gone through a period of Marxism which is almost unknown today to many american radicals a period when marxism was a worker's movement to a very great extent and when it was a movement in the streets in which hundreds of thousands of people at times could be brought out in massive demonstrations throughout the country under red flags whether it be communist or socialist and by the end of the second world war and particularly by the end of the nineteen forties i literally saw this movement disappear and disappear from history At least as far as the united states is concerned and i have no belief whatever that it will come back again namely what i'm saying is i saw the end of the classical workers movement and i had to ask myself why had this come about what did this mean and the conclusion i came to is this the workers movement never really had a revolutionary potential that the factories and i had worked in factories for 10 years and had worked in factories partly as a labor organizer in the old CIO, that this workers' movement had never really had the revolutionary potentialities that Marx attributed to it. That in point of fact, the factory, which is supposed to organize the workers, in Marx's language, mobilize them, and instill in them the class consciousness that is to stem out of a conflict between wage, labor, and capital, in fact, had created habits of mind in the worker that served to regiment the worker that served in fact to assimilate the worker to the work ethic to the industrial routine to hierarchical forms of organization and that no matter how compellingly Marx had argued that such a movement could have revolutionary consequences in fact such a movement could have nothing but a purely adaptive function an adjunct to the capitalist system itself and I began to try to explore what were movements and ideologies if you like that really were liberatory that really freed people of this hierarchical sensibility and mentality of this authoritarian outlook of this assimilation by the work ethic and I now began to turn very consciously toward anarchist views because anarchism posed the question not simply of a struggle between classes based upon economic exploitation Anarchism really was posing a much broader historical question that even goes beyond our industrial civilization. Not just classes, but hierarchy. Hierarchy as it exists in the family. Hierarchy as it exists in the school. Hierarchy as it exists in sexual relationships. Hierarchy as it exists between ethnic groups. Not only class divisions based upon economic exploitation. And it was concerned not only with economic exploitation, it was concerned with domination domination which may not even have any economic meaning at all the domination of women by men in which women are not economically exploited the domination of ordinary people by bureaucrats in which you may even have a welfare so-called socialist type of state domination as it exists today in china even when you're supposed to have a classless society domination even as it exists in russia where you are supposed to have a classless society So these are the things that I noted in anarchism, and increasingly I came to the conclusion that if we were to avoid, or if we are to avoid, the mistakes that were made over 100 years of proletarian socialism, if we are to really achieve a liberatory movement, not simply in terms of economic questions, but in terms of every aspect of life, we would have to turn to anarchism, because it alone posed the problem not merely of class domination, but hierarchical domination. And it alone posed the question not simply of economic exploitation, but exploitation in every sphere of life.
1: And who was this guy as a person? Was he kind of an asshole?
0: I have no clue who he was personally. He seemed like a really groovy person. There's there's a lot of the, the primitivists and lifestylists who like to frame him as a grumpy old man whining about everything.
1: Well, that's cool. I like grumpy old man. As long as they've got really coherent theories on how to save humanity from ecopocalypse, you can be as grumpy as you want.
0: That's the way I feel, but I also don't think he was that grumpy. I think he, he seemed like a pretty groovy person, actually. He was, he was known as a counterculture elder. That's what Janet Beale called him in the biography she wrote about him. And during the 60s, he was one of the few people over 40, I think, that the kids would talk to
1: oh yeah because he's a he was a red diaper baby
0: he was he was also a red diaper baby which is probably why he was such a good counterculture elder you know it's it's a natural progression i guess
1: being a red diaper baby means that you're raised by communist parents uh which i didn't know until uh pete taught me the other day
0: Mur- murray was raised by the communist party
1: <laughs> <laughs> wait what <laughs>
0: Yeah, Murray's Murray didn't have a father in the household, and was pretty much partially raised by the Communist Party as a child.
1: And then, he, and then he grew up. He grew up to write a, a pamphlet called "Listen, Marxist." That's about how Marxists should join him in sectarianism
0: <laughs> and revisionism
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the
0: highest degree. And 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 that pamphlet's really interesting. It's. It's a great critique, and it just shows his, his amazing ability for polemics, which he had later on in his career to an even crazier degree when it came to his polemics against deep ecology and, and lifestyleism.
1: Yeah, he, he 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 kind of picked beefs at different points and tore into his uh, his ideological enemies.
0: I think he's usually correct too when he does so.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not just him flying off the handle and being wrong. It's like he's got a, a good point to make.
0: But there's a certain tone and intensity that comes with his writing on those subjects that can easily turn people away.
1: It was mentioned uh, deep ecology before. And, and what, what was his problem with deep ecology?
0: They pretty much posed human freedom to ecological integrity and said that humans pretty much have to submit themselves to first nature and pretty much do the bare minimum in regards to survival uptake and not really advance technology in a meaningful sense which is by extension anti-democratic because it's precisely technology that gives us the free time that allows us to have democratic processes.
1: Unless you still have slaves. Oh yeah. (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) But I was going to say there's something really cruel about the way that deep ecology and biocentrism views the world is it sees all life as having inherently like equal value. So it poses a mosquito to a human as, as viewed as equal. There's no, there's no difference it's one thing to say that we should give life consideration unless there's a good reason not to that, that, that's fine. And that there's, if there's not a good reason to harm something that there's not a good reason to do so, that's fine as well. One can even have a vegan ethics while saying that they don't think that a human is the same as a mosquito because it's precisely um, human capacity for, for imagination, for virtue and not merely pleasure and pain. And for intentionality of extremely high orders where we're able to desire things that we desire and desire and, and then act upon them. There's certain things about humans that are special, and it's precisely through anti-humanist interactions that we actually create the vices that then make it so we treat the the biosphere in such cruel ways. So if we are actually serious about caring about non-human life. We need to focus on its social roots, which deal, yes, with the hierarchical systems, but also the vices produced by irrational or authoritarian relationships.
1: The domination of nature is rooted in the domination of human beings over one another.
0: And if that's true, then that needs to be a central focus point if we're serious about caring for the non-human world, whereas deep ecology will often talk about some kind of how do I put this? A kind of the, the problem is the way humans treat the non-human world, not the way that humans interact with each other, which, by extension, makes it so we treat the non-human world in cruel or irrational ways. Uh,
1: the deep ecologists are kind of like a, a, a brocialist, being like, "We'll worry about microaggressions after the revolution, sweetie," except with uh, ecology. We'll <laughs> we'll worry about interpersonal human domination after we figure this uh, ecology stuff out.
0: I think you're on to something. I'm not sure if the metaphor is perfect, but you're right about the way <laughs> that the deep ecologists view such things. Yeah, they, 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 they kind of see humans sometimes as an oppressor class, and then they treat them accordingly, according to like an identitarian social justice worldview.
1: Oh, yeah, it's almost like uh, third worldism, except just applied to all human beings, even in the third world.
0: I think you're correct. That is exactly what it is. And they think that such ideology is going to then allow us to treat each other in the way that's required to then treat the environment with any degree of care.
1: What do you What do you like about Bookchin? Like, what do you What attracted you to to his ideas?
0: Post scarcity anarchism was a way of me pretty much taking a 21st century technical understanding and trying to merge it with anarchism. And when I found that, it was pretty much. What I've been looking for, which was a way of taking sort of that kind of like transhumanist, even zeitgeist movement, Jacques Fresco-esque worldview, but then mixing it with the traditional um, libertarian left, while at the same time doing something qualitatively different in regards to talking, really fleshing out the forms of freedom. Um, for example, Kropotkin never really came up with a specific decision-making process. He just said it should be based on free agreement in some kind of bottom-up way whereas Bookchin came up with a a fuller form to democracy.
1: And it's something that he he described in detail enough that it's now being practiced by um, how many people in the Middle East?
0: Millions. Over three million, at least.
1: Like, I I don't know how I hadn't heard that number, because I like reading about Rojava, but three million seems like a lot of people. If you interpret me as, like, some sort of blind Bookchin ideologue, it's so much like a infomercial, like, wow, what is it? What has Murray done next? Three million, huh? No, but I'm <laughs> I am legitimately surprised by that number, which I haven't heard before. Are you sick and tired of your social movements being ineffectual and unecological?
0: You should snort math.
1: Did Bookchin ever talk about drug use? Did he ever talk about respectability politics? The, the critique of lifestyle anarchism is kind of a critique of that, hey?
0: Not necessarily. I think he's more critiquing the idea that drug use should be normative or that it's, it's revolutionary. He always thought that drug use should be like a personal choice. He even talks about how he used to use cannabis sometimes in a couple interviews. Um, and I know he used to, to drink during some points in his life as well. He, was, he never did psychedelics, for example, and he didn't really – I don't think he was a fan of them in any meaningful sense. He thought that a lot of the times the epiphanies people were having from these substances were not informed by reason, and he thought that he worked really hard for his brain and didn't want to gamble with it in any kind of way. But he just thought that there was an issue with conflating these lifestyle choices with um, some conception of, of the political should – and overemphasizing these sort of personal choices as as revolutionary.
1: It's not that he's saying fuck drugs so much as he's saying when you do drugs, you're not overthrowing hierarchical dominations of human beings.
0: And, and, even, and even that the over-obsession with them within a movement can be at the expense of, of greater ideals. And what's interesting is, look, I actually came into anarchism through punk music. It was bands like Crass that got me into Noam Chomsky and I use cannabis very frequently. So I'm somebody who's coming from, I guess, um, some kind of countercultural world or whatnot. And I think his critiques of lifestyleism still hold true. When you, when you have people who are more obsessed with, um, the subjective aesthetic than the good, I think there's huge problems with that or just like the, the individual's absolute autonomy to be unbounded, um, as opposed to some conception of social responsibility and social freedom, which actually gives more individuality. I think that those, those were good critiques he made of countercultural movements.
1: Have you participated in any kind of communalist organizing or, or book groups? Is this something that you've tried yourself?
0: Yes and no. It hasn't been sufficiently booked tonight for me to call it communalist, but I've participated in a lot of I'd say more broad libertarian socialist book clubs and organizing and popular education.
1: Do you see the consciousness getting raised? Or my po- I, my point is I, I'm I'm asking about your personal experiences because I want to know what to do. I don't know what to do to make the world better. How do I make the world better?
0: There's pretty much there's pretty much four basic spheres. I'll break this into categorically to make this just easier. But there's probably other nuances that one can go into. You have communitarian work, you have popular education, you have direct action, and then you have dual power. And all four of those need to exist in a mosaic with a libertarian socialist thrust. Communitarianism deals with pretty much social work and meeting people's needs. Direct action deals with people directly taking action against hierarchical institutions and to create non-hierarchical ones. When you have that institutionalized sufficiently, you can have a dual power system where you actually build a third sector to the market in the state that builds power, takes it away from the market in the state, and eventually pits itself against it while it hollows it out. Then you have popular education, which is the work done to then educate, and then those ideas have effects in regards to action, in regards to movements. Um, in regards to work that's done or, or things that are not done, et cetera, so I think that we're we're very driven by the theory and I, I i can't help but stress how important it is that we have good theory so we have good action. People who understate the importance of theory are it's going to be at the expense of their action ironically. so I would say it's it's a mosaic of those kind of four spheres.
1: do you think it's fair to call that the the ecology of tactic? <laughs>
0: it's an ecology of tactics that's for sure. I don't know if it's the I think someone could probably flesh that out a lot better. I think it's very crude, but I think it's a good framework to to look at things from.
1: Someday it will be once it's refined by reading groups and once it's refined by through popular consciousness raising and collaboration and face-to-face democracy, then we can confidently call it the ecology, but until then it's just an ecology. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't think there's an I don't think there's an end to it. I think we're gonna we're gonna probably consistently develop new and better tactics for moving the world forward, at different points in time and space. I don't think there's an end to tactics to achieve the good. I think that's a developmental thing. I think the end will exist when society ends, if society ends. Hopefully. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure the biocentrists in the audience are applauding.
1: Yeah, if human beings all die, then uh, then cows can run free. <laughs>
2: Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.
1: I just got back from a camping trip and it was so fun to be in the wilderness with my other friends from Deep Ecology. When we were out there, we all decided that we think that six billion people should die to save the earth because the earth is good and humans are bad.
0: The very anti-humanism that you're prescribing as a solution to the ecological problems is at it's very root.
1: Who is this grumpy old man? What a curmudgeon.
0: The process of killing six billion people would be so brutal, so extreme. It it would be an ecological devastation. And And it's precisely humans who have the ability to fix a lot of the problems hierarchy has caused. We have the potential to actually use liberatory technology to remedy those issues instead of not intervening positively, which would be ecocidal relative to our potential.
1: Okay, well maybe we won't kill six billion people, but can we at least kill the bourgeoisie?
0: How about we restrain the bourgeoisie from being the bourgeoisie and use self-defense appropriately, only to the degree that it makes sense to accomplish expropriation?
1: Reading your posts is giving me cancer, which is like all posts I read, which are all made by humans, and because humans are cancer. Go rewild yourself. I think I'm gonna rewild this comment section by deleting your comments and blocking you because you are the imposing voice of technology on this pristine wilderness of my Facebook comment section which was untouched and pure until you, a human, came and ruined it all with your original sin because you bit the apple by starting to organize and pass information down generations and you have things like cars and technology which is bad and, uh, and there's no difference between you and animals, except for you are bad. So you're blocked.
0: Nothing is worse than a digital primitivist echo chamber.
2: And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.
1: <laughs> oh man, digital primitivist echo chamber. I think that should be like the name of our emo band sad songs about how it's very implausible to leave society so pete i was wondering if do you feel like the left is like really successful right now like are we killing it
0: i don't know if the left exists right now
1: (laughs) what does that mean i'm very
0: skeptical if there's something that exists right now in the united states that we can call the left as as a as a serious succinct movement of any meaningful kind
1: so you're you're like a uh you're like a leftist truther you like, <laughs> <laughs> like you think you think that this whole thing—it's—it's not even—it doesn't even exist.
0: We have fragments. I don't think it's—I don't think it's a coherent movement of any meaningful kind right now.
1: Do you think of it as a as a meaningful as a meaningful category like left versus right or,
0: or? Oh, it's one of the most important categorical distinctions I can think of in the political universe.
1: What do what does it mean? During
0: the French Revolution, the people who sat on the left to Robespierre wanted more direct governance, and the people who sat on the right of Robespierre wanted more conservatism. So it's the general thrust of a more directly managed society is within the left. It's it's inherently the more anti-authoritarian, the more pro-equality wing of politics, whereas the right represents reaction, something to the right of Robespierre even and it has a very rich tradition from 1793 Paris Paris sections to the 1871 Paris Commune to Spain in 1936 to the Zapatistas in the 90s to Rojava in the 21st century and various other movements against fascism that have fought for the most basic rights within hierarchical governance systems that have allowed people to have more safety nets and more freedom within such horrible systems. It's a very rich history that we need to recover and find the best of while taking out the worst of and build on top of it. Otherwise, I think we're we're doomed to reinvent a wheel um, in a funny way that the Zeitgeist movement kind of did where it claimed to neither be right nor left. And sort of, since it didn't have any of this left tradition and it didn't take the best parts from it, It wasn't sufficiently political. It didn't have a sufficient uh, dual power program and a a sufficient positive program even or a political one and and any kind of just merely an economic one. So it's when people lose that entire tradition and throw the baby out with the bathwater – that they're unable to sort of decipher history for all the gems.
1: The importance of the, the left categorization for you is the historical legacy of the left that you're, you conceive of being on the left as redeeming the historical struggles of past leftist movements and bringing them to fruition.
0: Much more than that, though, because I think it also represents a general thrust against authoritarianism for equality and for self management. And for democracy, for greater democratization.
1: But why left and right rather than something like to and fro?
0: <laughs> or a, a 23-dimensional political compass that's impossible to
1: read. Yeah, I want one of those. There's many
0: different categorical schemes that one could use t- to describe various political views. The left-right one happens to encompass this broad range of more conservatism, more authoritarianism, less democracy versus it's antithesis, which is the left.
2: The basic problem I really have is that whenever I meet leftists and the socialists and Marxist movements, I'm called a petty bourgeois individualist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to shrink under this. Usually I'm called the petty bourgeois individualist by students and by academicians who've never done a day's work life in their, their entire biography, whereas I have spent years in factories and in trade unions in foundries, and in auto plants. So after I have to swallow the word petty bourgeois, I don't mind the word individualist at all. I believe in individual freedom. It's my primary and complete commitment in individual liberty. That's what it's all about. That's what socialism is supposed to be about or anarchism is supposed to be about and tragically has been betrayed. And when I normally encounter my so-called colleagues on the left, socialists, Marxists, communists, they tell me that after the revolution they're going to shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> that is said with unusual consistency. <laughs> they're going to stand me and Carl up against the wall and get rid of us real fast. I feel much safer in your company.
1: <laughs> it happened to me recently where a, someone on the communist spectrum in the same conversation, was like imploring me to consider their ideology and read these texts and was saying that if the revolution happened, they would kill me.
0: Oh, I've had many um, state socialists and tankies tell this to me. I get it. I've I've gotten it pretty frequently. It's a thing that happens. They're relatively consistent about that in particular, about saying that they'll kill dissenters and actual leftists. Um, So, yeah, on one level, there is a ruling class and they need to be stopped from being the ruling class, and there is obviously some form of community and self-defense that makes sense and is, is necessary for meaningful freedom. Well, at the same time, it's also important to note that the problems are not like just like some ruling class, but it's actually an overall political, economic, hierarchical system um, that can take various forms and that can have many different people in those positions over time and we have to actually deal with that system and not just
1: individuals
0: and not just um the ruling class but ideologies and social systems that allow for ruling classes
1: and you, you, do you think that this type of this type of violent threat is indicative of being a real leftist being the leftist leftist around?
0: Oh, wait, you're talking about the violent threat towards you? <laughs>
1: yeah. Because if you're insufficiently revolutionary, you are murdered.
0: Absolutely insane. The kind of elitism that comes with that mentality is as gross as um, fascist
1: ones, honestly. Is that horseshoe theory coming to compare them to fascists?
0: Ultimately, if, you're, if we're dealing with the, the craziest kind of state socialists who are pedal to the metal authoritarian, um, it's it's very similar. It's fascism with a left mask. It has nothing to do with the left, in my opinion. It's it's a betrayal to all of the anti-authoritarian and democratic principles of the left it's very much located firmly in the right as far as i'm
1: concerned it's not that it's not that it's went so far left that it's become right it's just that it's right with some left posturing
0: yeah it's right with a left mask there are certainly overlap movements and when that happens it's there's some very dangerous stuff and it's usually due to incoherence um, a negative program rather than a, a sufficiently negative and sufficiently positive one
1: if the left doesn't currently exist, do you think we've got some imposters around, people who claim to be the left but can't meaningfully take up that title?
0: I think so. I think when you have extremely authoritarian worldviews and organizations that claim to be left, well, they can choose to call themselves whatever they want to, although they're going to be wrong. And I think, <laughs> I think they should correct themselves. But yeah, I think there's a lot of authoritarian movements and ideologies that claim to be left as well as certain stuff that claims to be left that doesn't really have to do with its general thrust in a meaningful sense, or that doesn't properly take the best parts from it, from the past, and move it into the present, and then transcend it by adding on top of that. The identitarians claim to be left, but their project has more to do with reducing an individual's epistemology, ontology, and even ethical potential to various unchosen identity characteristics and then treating people accordingly and it doesn't really have much to do with stopping things that they might be trying to stop even in fact it often takes away from from serious movements against various particular issues that affect particular people more than others by creating a completely incoherent postmodern worldview that um Pretty much treats people in really terrible ways and really can't build a serious movement of quality of thoughts and quantity of numbers.
1: I, I know what you're talking about, which is this kind of... The, 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 Just say it, Sean. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're talking about social justice warriors.
0: The inversion of the alt-right warrior. Not its negation, its inversion it uses the fallacy of division and composition. So it inappropriately applies from the pattern to the individual and from the individual to the pattern. And it's rooted in that and ad hominem circumstantial and the circumstantial becomes the unchosen identity characteristic. And you have, you have this throughout the history of revolutionary subjectivity of, of various groups that are, are pretty much able to have it because of, unchosen positionality as opposed to shared ideals and perhaps even a negative positionality in the sense of including people who don't cross certain moral red lines, like people who aren't cops or capitalists or state crafters, for example, um, as a kind of negative positionality that then allows for people to have revolutionary potential who, who don't cross those certain moral red lines as opposed to conceptions of ethics and revolutionary potential as rooted in the unchosen. Um, so it's it's in, instead of organizing around um, identity groupings, I think it's important to organize around common ideals, which, by extension, the universalistic ideals, it, by extension, contain the particular issues um, that uh, a serious anti-racism and feminism would take into consideration.
1: So humanity is a cancer on the Earth, and... We need to kill, like, a million or maybe a billion or several billion people in order to save Earth, which is good, away from humans that are bad. Do you agree? Or...
0: I disagree vehemently.
1: <laughs> Wait, which part? Because you're saying that Earth isn't good? Earth is great. I, I, I disagree with... And therefore, the therefore... thing that destroys Earth, humans, is bad.
0: The thing that destroys Earth is, or I should say the biosphere, is hierarchy at this point in time, and that's bad. Humans, it needs to be abolished.
1: But isn't it human nature to be hierarchical?
0: According to right-wing social theorists in the, the late 1700s and early 1800s.
1: But it's, it's just the way of the world. Uh, like, the gorillas are the landlords of the jungle. There's nothing more natural than paying rent every month. That's just the way of the world. And everything that
0: is natural should be, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, because, because like in the same way that a big fish would eat a small fish, in that same way, poor people don't deserve housing.
0: Oh, and here's what's so gross about that. They take a periodic thing in, in nature, right? Which is a fish eating a fish maybe or what, what? that's the example you're giving? Yeah. Okay, so that's periodic. That's not an institutional problem. It's a it's a, it's a, pure, it's a periodic... The,
1: the fish community needs to have a conversation about all this fish-on-fish fish violence.
0: <laughs> There's no hierarchy there. You have a predator-prey relationship. Hierarchy requires an institutional arrangement that that is then authoritarian and top-down, that kind of arrangement.
1: That's like the capitalists and the proles, baby. Predators, prey. No
0: institution, no hierarchy.
1: <laughs> H- human beings, we have these... Um these completely irrational counter to our shared interests systems of hierarchy that in order to justify, we look at nature and try to like find examples of things that are almost like the way we're fucked up. And we like collectively, I mean, we we, like very selectively try to find these tiny little parts of nature that tell us that the way that we hurt each other is fine. Um, So we like project our, inhumanity onto nature and then use it as evidence that our inhumanity in is fine all along which is not really like it's not a scientific perspective to to, to not notice that uh lions aren't actually the king of the jungle they don't <laughs> they, they don't get to decide what all the other animals do or collect taxes or anything like that and the queen bee isn't a queen but i think it's important
0: to, to, to note that there's there's gradations of intentional community within natural evolution, humans happening to be social and institutional, but you you find grades of that throughout nature, but you don't find anything that is an actual institutional arrangement until we're dealing with homo sapiens sapiens. Yeah, it emerged out of first nature, but it's qualitatively different. And institutions, we're talking about like formal rules, formal intentionality, it's communicated, that's designed to continue onwards and not just be periodic. And that's something that's very special about that humans that gives us a certain um, importance in regards to the way we treat each other because because we have that institutional ability, we could potentially cause a, a ton of harm or do a ton of good, we can potentially save first nature. And second nature from the next non-artificial environmental catastrophe. We can, we can do a lot of good with our institutions and we can also do a lot of horrible things. It allows, and with, with greater technology plus hierarchical institutions, we have a greater capacity to use mass destruction. And that's inherently anti-ecological. There's something very inherently anti-ecological about states and arms races and the entire military apparatus.
1: There, there are arms races in the animal kingdom. It's, it's natural as can be.
0: <laughs> the, the absurd conceptions of evolution as only being competitive and brutal, and that being the only major factor in evolution and in the, the biosphere is just so false. There's so much mutualism and immensalism and commensalism and complicated mutualistic arrangements where you have keystone species that allow hundreds of other species to then exist there and their are interesting little arrangements and there's a, there's an extreme imperative more than ever just in regards to global warming and, and and species extinction and loss and other just ecocidal catastrophes that are constantly happening and the degree of weaponization on the planet the combination of all of the above makes ecological and political ethics more um, relevant than ever before in, in an interesting way, more urgent, more important to very to, to deal with very seriously.
1: What is the self crit that the left needs to receive? if you can only pick one?
0: <laughs> to focus on universalisms that contain the particulars that they're trying to focus on rather than particularism at the expense of universalism, I think it's impossible to focus on every particular, proportionally to how much we should focus on them. I think that's impossible. I think given that it's impossible to do so, it's also important to just focus on the universal issues. Like, for example, if by by understanding hierarchy itself and being against hierarchy itself, by extension, you're against the particular forms if you're being consistent. And that leaves you with a broader negative program. And also, it's often true that by focusing on certain universal issues are you able to deal with certain particulars appropriately or to deal with them in a way where there's um the good by the end of it and not merely um just the dealing of one branch of a problem while the root remains and is growing branches perhaps as fast as they're being chopped down the the more universalistic humanist perspective looks at a metric of allness and by extension deals with particular problems appropriately
1: so as as Karl Marx said to be radicals to grasp things by the root and you advocate for a universalist root to be grasped instead of fighting off branches
0: as well as a universalist positive program to put in its place that is able to deal with every particular problem that we can possibly deal with
1: universal human liberation
0: absolutely from hierarchy
1: I'm just trying to think of how to respond critically to what what you've said, which I believe is factually bulletproof. Like you described a perfect idea that has no weak points. Even the smartest devil's advocate for this idea is a straw man, because no one would dare speak against such a self-evident idea. (laughs) There's (laughs) no... You're, tre- you're treating everything as as extremely biblical. <laughs> that's how I, that's how I feel. Like I, I need to say, like. I'm a doctrinaire convert. Like I'm not interested in. What I'm looking for is to create systems of social exclusion along the lines of of the uh, the the new Bookchin religion. Uh, and create a culture around Murray Bookchin that is able to uh, compete against other leftist cultures, but with ideas that refute their stupidest ideas. Um, so my interest is more about like figuring out how can I make people afraid to not be a Bookchinite. <laughs> how can I how can I make sure that if someone doesn't know their Bookchin that they're being laughed out of any? That's what I'm more interested in.
0: Oh no! Oh no! That's horrible.
1: Yeah, I want to use this knowledge to bully people. That's what social, that's, that's that's what leftism is about, right? Is like when you hear a new idea, you and you're like, this is great. I know exactly how to bludgeon people with it. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, it's and it's prefigurative because uh, after <laughs> after um, after the revolution, when we live in a communalist utopia, we're gonna have all day for sectarianism and infighting.
0: I hope so. Hey, what happens when you get two anarchists in a room? Three faction splits.
1: <laughs> Did you hear about the, um, the leftist comedians?
0: No, I haven't heard about them. S-
1: so far, they've had ten meetings and written zero jokes.
0: <laughs> well, that's because that's they were probably using unanimity as a process instead of some kind of social contract-based democracy with free association.
1: next time on the seriously wrong podcast what's gonna happen pete (laughs) spotlight moves to pete
0: whole show about kombucha
1: will you come back for the kombucha show (laughs) no but, but you're the you're the only kombucha expert I know. I don't know about kombucha
0: where it's located historically. It seems like a whole foods trend. <laughs> it seems uniquely located towards the Whole Foods population.
1: Yeah, I don't know if kombucha's white or if it's something that we've culturally appropriated.
0: I don't think it started with white people, but I don't think <laughs> cultural appropriation is a problem. <laughs> I think I mean, it's, just, it's just it's just something that happens. I don't know why people drip on it. I don't think culture has a blood quota. I think people who think culture has a blood quota are are extremely reactionary. I think that's a good example of authoritarian with a left mask kind of stuff is the idea that that needs to be even socially sanctioned in regards to culture and blood quotas. Ugh, that's so gross and regressive. It's, it's interesting because you have the alt-right who are telling white people to segregate themselves culturally, and then you have the the cultural appropriation the anti-cultural appropriation warriors telling everyone to culturally segregate oh
1: yeah we're still in the warning right now i'm just ta- i'm just trying to talk about the good <laughs> <laughs> warning next episode we learn more about the good
0: <laughs> it's a great topic
1: according to wikipedia at least there's little or no evidence to support the the positive health claims of kombucha and there's a lot of uh, documented cases of adverse effects, including fatalities. So, booch <laughs> booch. <laughs> That's why I'm kind of like a I'm an insurrectionary anarchist, and I advocate feeding kombucha to the 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 bourgeoisie. The kombuchwazi. The kombuchwazi. <laughs> the geographic origin of kombucha is unknown.
0: You know why
2: it's unknown? Illuminati. Cultural appropriation that with the breakup of tribal societies and to the extent that these societies were egalitarian to the extent that these societies viewed at least their own members not those outside in most cases but at least their own members in various tribes as co-equals to the extent that men regarded themselves as co-equals with women to the extent that elderly people regarded themselves as co-equals with younger people that the breakup of that sense of complementarity, of co-equality, leading to hierarchies in which the most striking that are known to us are patriarchy, and more precisely, patrocentricity. Gerontocracies, the rule of the young by the old. By the way, the most widespread, along with patrocentricity, the most widespread form of rule that existed long before economic classes emerged these age groups and the basic idea that certain individuals such as shamans had mysterious powers of their own not only over the natural world but over human beings ultimately leading to priests and ultimately leading to deities with priestly corporations supporting them conditioned our attitude toward the natural world nobody would have thought that you could dominate the natural world without first bringing domination into society. The very idea of domination wouldn't have appeared. Hence the idea of dominating the natural world, which can only be an idea. We can't dominate the natural world. It's an absurd statement. You can't dominate a chair, you can't dominate a tree, you can't even dominate an animal. It doesn't know that it's being dominated. You have to have an intersubjectivity, an interaction between two subjects who know what domination means before domination can emerge that that domination which existed among human beings gave rise as men began to dominate women as age groups began to dominate the older age groups began to dominate younger ones as you began to see warrior groups dominating the rest of the community and forming a state all the way through that whole system of domination which people internalize which they make part of their psychic mechanisms, accepting submission. And women have done that for thousands of years, as you know. And many subject people have done that for thousands of years. Internalizing it, it out into the natural world, leads to the idea that the natural world can be and should be dominated.